Greetings, everybody. You are listening to the American Exception Podcast, and I'm Aaron Good. We are fortunate today to be talking with Jefferson Morley about the latest developments in the JFK assassination, specifically the documents which were released in part yesterday, Thursday, December 15th, though unsurprisingly, the CIA is still withholding many documents after 59 years and counting. What was surprising was seeing Tucker Carlson's story on the case. The story is titled, Here's What a Source Said About the CIA and JFK's Assassination. The article which Tucker read on his show on Fox News contained this passage. Well, today we decided to find out. We spoke to someone who had access to these still-hidden CIA documents, a person who was deeply familiar with what they contained. We asked this person directly, did the CIA have a hand in the murder of John F. Kennedy, an American president? And here's the reply we received verbatim, quote, The answer is yes, I believe they were involved. It's a whole different country from what we thought it was. It's all fake. It's hard to imagine a more jarring response than that. Again, this is not a conspiracy theorist that we spoke to, not even close. This is someone with direct knowledge of the information that, is, that once again is being withheld from the American public. And the answer we received was unequivocal. Yes, the CIA was involved in the assassination of the president. Now, some people will not be surprised to hear that they suspected it all along. But no matter how you feel about it or what you thought about the Kennedy assassination, pause to consider what this means. It means that within the U.S. government, there are forces wholly beyond democratic control. These forces are more powerful than the elected officials that supposedly oversee them. These forces can affect election outcomes. They can even hide their complicity in the murder of an American president. In other words, they can pretty much do anything they want. They constitute a government within a government, mocking by their very existence the idea of democracy. As cynical as we have become after 30 years of watching government officials ignore the voters who employ them, we were shocked to learn this. It's not acceptable. Ah, okay, well, of course I am not shocked to hear about any of this information regarding the JFK assassination, but I was shocked to hear it described that way on any mainstream U.S. media outlet. Even more shocking uh, was this passage from Tucker's report. Some people started asking obvious questions about the Warren Commission's conclusion about the two lone nuts in Dallas. It was at this point, as Americans started to doubt the official story, that the term conspiracy theory entered the lexicon. As Professor Lance DeHaven Smith points out in his book on the subject, the term conspiracy theory did not exist as a phrase in everyday American conversation before 1964. In 1964, the year the Warren Commission issued its report, the New York Times published five stories in which conspiracy theory appeared. Now today, of course, the term conspiracy theory appears in pretty much every New York Times story about American politics. It's wielded now as then as a weapon against anyone who asks questions the government doesn't feel like answering. But despite 60 years of name-calling, those questions have not disappeared. In fact, they have multiplied with time. Okay, as listeners may know, Lance DeHaven Smith was a dear friend of mine and a mentor as well. He died last month, uh, and at present, I'm about halfway through writing a, a tribute for him. And it's a, it's a challenge because uh, I, I just had so much admiration and love for the guy uh, that, that I feel overwhelmed as I do this, but I'm heartened to get this finished, so I hope to have it done before too long. Um, I was already amazed to see the JFK story that we're talking about here get reported the way that it was on Carlson's show. But for Carlson to bring up Lance in a totally appropriate and relevant way, I am just kind of gobsmacked. I know, believe me, I know that Tucker is a right-wing operative, and I'm someone who thinks that the whole of the corporate media are functional or literal CIA assets. Uh, the liberal side is the much more nefarious part in in my mind uh, in a way because they're supposed to be for justice and democracy and such murdoch uh, fox news and tucker carlson are so pro-empire and pro-capitalism that there would hardly seem to be any need to woo them um, but you know here we are um, it has to be said putting aside the personage of tucker carlson that on its merits the story is is outstanding in the context of uh, U.S. media reporting on the JFK assassination. I wish Lance were around to see this, uh, but of course I'm going to find myself thinking that a lot, uh, I believe. Anyway, my guest today, Jefferson Morley, is a Washington author and veteran journalist whose novelistic nonfiction books 
explore untold chapters in the history of the American nation. His newest book is Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. His other books include The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton, and Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA. If you are not already a subscriber and you want to learn more about the hidden history of the U.S. and the clandestine state, please consider subscribing to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Jefferson Morley, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me, Aaron. So there have been a lot of developments, and you have been kind of at the center of them of late with the JFK Records Act and the deadline um, that was yesterday, mm-hmm. and has not everything has been released. Um, what is What do you make of what has been released? What can, can you summarize what has been released and what we're still waiting to hear from? What is the state of affairs with all this? Uh, I mean, we're talking about a large group of records, 15, 16,000 different records that contain some form of redaction, ranging from a word to a sentence to a paragraph to a page. Um, and they cover all aspects of the assassination story, although there's not much on the crime scene, on forensic evidence. All of that has been made public. And there's not much on sort of secondary issues like JFK's autopsy. Um, But there is a lot of material on the CIA and the FBI. They hold most of the documents that still contain redactions. Um, So what they did yesterday, it's a little bit of a shell game. Um, They make this big show. We released 7,000 documents, you know, in their entirety. Uh, That leaves close to 4,000 that still have redactions. And it's not even clear... um, whether the 7,000 figure is accurate, because what we noticed when we went through a batch of about 40 documents last night, um, one thing that they do is they go through a document and they, they declassify one sentence. And then they say, we've released that record, although it might have a whole nother page redacted. So, and the most telling example was the, the, the one I was most interested in, which is a memo that Arthur Schlesinger wrote to Kennedy two months after the Bay of Pigs. And the title of the memo is CIA Reorganization. And anybody who knows the story of Kennedy knows that he was really pissed after the Bay of Pigs. And he reportedly said that he wanted to break the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. Well, this memo is kind of like, it's not that vivid language, but it's like, hey, maybe we should reorganize the CIA, you know? And Arthur Schlesinger, liberal fellow, um, was kind of making this, not really making the case to Kennedy that they should reorganize it. But here's the problem with the CIA. They conduct independent foreign policy. You know, they make policy. Um, they foist policy off on the president and the State Department, which is what Kennedy felt the Bay of Pigs was, that the CIA- For good was, reason. Yeah, was was acting like a policy-making organization, which it's not supposed to be. Um, so in the middle of this memo, there's a page and a half that is completely redacted. So this is a memo that's written two years before Kennedy's assassination. So it, it, it can't really figure in the controversy about the assassination or the controversies about Oswald or the investigations. So the only thing that it can do is embarrass the CIA. And so when we go to look at that document yesterday, the page and a half of redactions remain. And literally, they declassified one sentence. And so, you know, the only thing you can conclude is that, you know, they want to control the record of the assassination that is available to historians. And if there's things that are embarrassing in there to them, they'll keep them off the record to, you know, to protect themselves. That, that memo is a, you know, exhibit a of that impulse. So we know that's going on. You know, they are trying to control the narrative of the assassination. The stuff that we did see that was declassified, you know, at best, interesting detail, um, you know, the kind of detail that you want to know if you're analyzing covert operations, identity of cryptonyms, identity of sources, 
um, that sort of thing. Um, but you know, we did a we did a, a case study of we looked at 33 documents that were kind of prima facie of interest to uh, JFK researchers. And I asked around to a lot of researchers, you know, give me a good example of it. And so we put all those together into this list. When we went to check, out of the 33, only 13 had been released in full as of yesterday. And 20 still had very significant redactions. And really, the redactions hadn't really changed at all as a result of this test. So while they tout these big numbers, if you drill down and say, well, what did that mean in terms of this, that, and the other document? You know, it, like I said, it's a shell game. It, they offered one thing and they gave you another. Yeah, that's fascinating about Schlesinger. He's one of the more interesting and kind of infuriating characters in this whole debacle because if David Talbot told me that it was reading his uh, biography of RFK that in a way set him on the path to writing brothers because Schlesinger mentions in passing, oh yeah, RFK never really believed the Warren Commission. Go figure. And then later in his life, supposedly on maybe on his deathbed even, he said something to the effect of like, my greatest regret was like not writing a this book about the CIA that I'd meant to write. Um, so and like he would always say he was agnostic, but then he would he like endorsed JFK in Vietnam, the Newman book. He was one of the first people to actually talk about that. You know, in the years before, yeah. saying that Kennedy was trying to pull out of Vietnam, but then he would play tennis with Helms. Uh, you know, it's well, he, what, he was, you know, he was a court historian, right? And he wanted to yeah. be the historian in the court of King John. So, you know, that was the role. Yeah, I mean, and he was very much an insider and he protected himself by not sharing that. Um, my favorite story is in his letters. Um, in his letters, uh, which were released around the time he died, um, he has a letter right after the assassination in which he relates a conversation that he had with Kennedy. Robert Kennedy told him about his conversation with McCone. McCone had just come back and seen the Zabruder film. So this is right yeah. after the assassination. CIA had got their hands on it right away, which nobody knew for a long time. Um, and uh, in the letter, RFK says that McCone told him that he believed the president had been hit by gunfire from two directions, which is a, a natural reaction to seeing the Zabruder film. It sure looks like that. You know, right. so, so there it was. The director of the CIA had seen the Zabruder film. That was news in and of itself, right? And he thought the president had been hit by gunfire from two different directions. And Bobby Kennedy knew this, and he knew it. So it was like this knowledge of what, you know, like what was really going on in Dallas, you know, the people at that level talked about it. They didn't say, oh, that's a crazy conspiracy theory. No, it was like a live wire in their world, you know, and they couldn't talk about it publicly. Oh, you know, I couldn't talk about it till they died. So, right. Yeah. And the Tucker thing says uh, in, in the Tucker, I mean, we should talk about this Tucker Carlson thing because it just I, I only saw it this morning. <clears throat> I guess it came out last night, but that was sort of after after close of business for me. So I didn't see it online, uh, but uh, thankfully I get off a little bit, but um, I, I, I do get off the wet internet at some point, but he was, he mentions um, a number of, of things about the JFK assassination and these documents and what they, it basically echoes some of what you were saying, although he has something more, he claims to have an inside source who's seen the documents and says, really bold statements that like the CIA has been lying and he goes as far as to say like, this isn't the country we thought we were living in more or less. I mean, this is, this seems to corroborate what you were, you had that press conference recently with Rex yeah. Bradford of Mary Farrell. Right. And yeah. also John Tunheim, who was on the AARB in charge of declassifying these things. Um, what, what is your take on Tucker's uh, a story here? Well, I mean, his agenda is to run down, you know, institutions and run down the presidency. So I think that has to be seen as his, you know, not maybe his only motivation, but a primary motivation. Um, but I also think, you know, it's a, if you're anti-government, you know, it's a great story to beat up the government because the government's, you know, behavior is so atrocious and so suspicious. So, you know, the, the, the CIA handed him, you know, uh, and the president's critics, this, this stick to beat up Biden with. And now they can say, look, Biden's hiding who killed Kennedy, you know? And, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, the CIA obviously doesn't care, right? 
they'd rather provoke suspicion than give up their sources and methods, you know, like they don't care if people think they killed Kennedy. That's fine. You know, they're going to do their business. They, they put Biden in a terrible position, I think. Um, and I'm not sure that it's tenable uh, in the in the long run, because, you know, there is a lot of public opinion about this. And, I'm, you know, will the Republicans one question is, will the Republicans conduct oversight hearings on the JFK Records Act now that they control the House? You know, that could be a witch hunt that could be very helpful. You know, I don't know what what's and it might not happen at all. They'd rather talk about Hunter Biden's laptop. But, um, you know. The need for oversight is very real, you know, and that's what the kind of the commonsensical reaction of the media coverage that we see now, you know, which has turned, you know, people come to us like at the Mary Farrell Foundation and me because we know the documents, which other people don't know. And we have a credible story to tell. Now, it might not be the story that people want to hear that the Warren Commission was wrong, but because we're credible, we're now getting a hearing in mainstream news organizations that we never got before. That's different. Yeah. That's different. I mean, it is it is very strange, and I there have I I I like to try to say what I know and what I don't know when I when I'm in such a position. I really don't know what Tucker's angle is. It could be, as you say, that it's that it's a partisan thing. I wonder if it's something deeper where. Uh, you know, maybe it, it seems like there's so much inertia in, in what this country has become that nothing can um, act as a countervailing pressure against this kind of top down rule. And the JFK assassination is a major part in that story. I mean, I my, maybe my more optimistic side is that some elements are uh, in this regime that we live under are wanting to have a kind of reckoning in order to deal with how dysfunctional the state actually is. Uh, but it, even as I say it, the idea of Tucker as the midwife for such a thing all seems ridiculous. So I'm, I'm just yeah. kind of baffled. Uh, I, I wonder about, you know, um, the forces behind the scene. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of inertia at the CIA and it's in the nature of compartmentalized operations, right? That you don't know what the guy at the next desk is doing and you don't ask. And so the idea of a small plot against the president, and by small plot, I mean a handful of people, you know, maybe four people, and one of whom was Lee Harvey Oswald, right? That's how small a plot I think the Kennedy assassination actually was. I mean, I think people around that knew what had happened, they knew that this was a false flag operation to blame communists for a crime uh, as a way of, of generating support for invading Cuba. Um, and, you know, that's the that's the thing that the CIA has never considered. And, and, and so they, they may be walking around uh, at the CIA and very few people have ever said, well, well, let's open up that box and look at that compartmentalized operation because it's, you know, compartmentalized and has security clearances out the wazoo, you know, and probably only the director and one other person get to open that box, you know, and Bill Burns is probably too busy, got a war to fight, you know, he's got an empire to run, you know, Bill Burns probably doesn't know anything about JFK. He was probably briefed this week. We're going to do this. Please sign this piece of paper, that sort of thing. He might have asked a few questions, but, you know, the CIA has a vested interest in not questioning itself. And because they have impunity, nobody else gets to question them either. So, and that is dysfunctional. Like you say, you know, it's like, um, uh, are there forces in the CIA that want to have that reckoning? Well, you know, when I talk about this small plot, my thinking on the subject was very much influenced by Rolf Mowat Larson, the former CIA guy who gave a talk about Dealey Plaza as a covert operation which I thought was quite brilliant. And he posits a small plot of, you know, and based on his experience running covert operations, he said, you know, some of the most important best operations we ever did were only known to a very, you know, less than a handful of people, even though they might've had big, you know, big implications. So I think that jived with my thinking about Kennedy's assassination in a lot of ways. And I think it explains a lot in terms of, you know, People had, people didn't have foreknowledge. 
and they didn't necessarily have guilty knowledge. All the plotters had to do was count on them to not ask questions. And that was easy to do. People didn't want to ask questions. Right. I mean, I, I, as David Talbot has, I think, and the other people before him, you know, Alan Dulles seems like a major suspect and he was out of the central in terms of like probably managing the right. operation and he was out of the CIA. That means that you're talking about something that is not as neat as like Operation Ajax or something that is a clear cut CIA operation. Additionally, you have the Treasury Secretary who runs Secret Service, Dylan. And Dylan is Dylan Reed is the comp- is one of the the Wall Street firm that was like one of the main for- driving forces behind the creation of the CIA in the first place. He's a guy who was in favor of getting rid of Lumumba, in favor of getting rid of um, Arbenz in Guatemala. I mean, he was a guy who really uh, epitomizes that part of the oligarchy. And so I, I have to think that other agencies would have been involved, but even more than that the American oligarchy. I mean, I, I, it's like he, what Kennedy was doing and pissing off the people that like were the, uh, people that fortune magazine advocates for, for example, you know, like this was, it it seems that there were bigger forces there. So if it's to put it all just as, Oh yeah, it was the CIA. I mean, I, the the compartmental, which I don't think you're doing, you're saying it's a small operation, I mean, would you concur right. and, that it and, wasn't and, just in the CIA? And that, and that takes place in a political milieu. I'm just talking about yes. the, the execution of an operation where right. one thing happens and you make it look like something else, a covert operation. Right. And, and right. that would have been executed by intelligence professionals. Now, yes. But, you know, what gave, so, you know, if that's what happened, why did they do that? Well, opposition to Kennedy's policies, which. By 63, Kennedy was definitely moving in a dovish direction, right? You could you could argue about the first two years of his presidency. Was he a hawk? Was he a dove? But after the missile crisis, it's pretty clear he's a dove and that it's working for him politically. You know, he came out of the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, a winner. He was like, it was like Biden this time. You know, it was like, wow, he pulled a rabbit out of a hat. You know, the Democrats thought they were going to get creamed in large part because of Cuba. Um, and in fact, Kennedy shoots up uh, 15 points in the polls and the Democrats don't lose anything in the midterm. Um, so Kennedy carries that message into 1963. He's got a winning hand politically. Peace is good politics, he's discovering. And uh, he's put Vietnam on hold. He's, you know, the generals want him to go in in a big way and he's dragging his feet Um More than that, the October, that early October memo from uh, Taylor, where he says all planning will be geared towards the pullout, uh, you know, I mean, the the withdrawal plan. He says all planning. It's, I mean, Galbraith has written a a good bit about this. And I, I, and even the deputy national, not the assistant to um, McGeorge Bundy, he wrote also that like, yeah, um, Galbraith is correct. The plan at the time that Kennedy was killed was a phase withdrawal from Vietnam. Yeah. So this is this is really and it, it's never been acknowledged by the press as that as being that way, even as the record is out there. It's very strange. Well, you know, Kennedy encouraged for political reasons. He wanted to be perceived as a hawk. Right. Um, because that would be, you know, that was playing to the middle while his his real sympathies were somewhat more to the left. Um you know, and that, that's he played that double game on Cuba, too, in 63. You know, he's still talking about overthrowing Castro. He's still not reigning in the CIA, which is trying to do that. Um, David and Talbot and I disagree on this. You know, I think Bobby Kennedy might have even signed off on the plots to kill Castro. You know, Bobby Kennedy was a real tough SOB um, uh, before the assassination. He was radicalized by it. So I don't find that implausible. But at the same time, you know, Kennedy cracks. He doesn't invade Cuba at the, at the missile crisis, which infuriated the Joint Chiefs and the CIA in Miami. Um, that's when they thought his weakness was really treacherous. You know, he went from weak to treacherous after the after the missile crisis in the eyes of his critics. And then in April of 63, he cracks down on the um the Cuban exiles who are launching raids against Cuba from Miami and from Florida. And they round them all up and they give them orders and say, you can't leave Dade County without permission of INS. 
And so giving them ankle bracelets and stuff too. Yeah. And so that was like strike three. Bay of Pigs was strike one. Missile crisis was strike two. The crackdown was strike three. So, you know, that really provoked a lot of hostility too in, in the CIA. So Kennedy is, and I think the way David portrays this in Brothers is, is affecting and, and was can very convincing to me. You know, the Kennedys were kind of isolated in their own government. You know, they had powerful foes within their own government, and they didn't they didn't have a lot of protection. One thing that I think is part of that is that Kennedy's stance on civil rights, which, again, first two years, he's dragging his feet. He's not helping the civil rights movement at all. You know, Martin Luther King, civil rights movement is very disappointed in President Kennedy. And it's not until Medgar Evers is assassinated in June of 63 that Kennedy finally comes out in favor of the civil rights bill. And so he finally moved, you know, I think that that had a lot to do with his loss of position within his own government, because I think because of that, he didn't have protection of law enforcement. He didn't have sympathy in the secret service or, you know, or the Dallas police, you know, the Dallas police was overwhelmingly anti-Kennedy because he was pro civil rights and Dallas was a Jim Crow town. So Kennedy is this isolated figure very popular generally, but isolated and has powerful opponents within his own government as 1963 goes on. Yeah. I mean, and it's notable that the the Warren Commission does not include any of Kennedy's actual political allies in the, in, in the U.S. political system. It's all Republicans, establishment guys like John McCloy, and then, uh, and Dulles, of course, but then the Democrats are segregationists, and the Democrats actually, even though they're segregationists, and even though the Warren Commission is presented as a unanimous opinion, even those segregationist guys who we could some would call them, you know, these cracker senators or whatever, and congressmen, but they are even they are like, well, this. I mean, the Richard Russell thing. He's like, I don't know if I buy this magic bullet <laughs> theory. It's a load of horse punky, right? Like this is what they're saying, and so even then, I mean, it was. You're pointing out now that they um, that the media is treating this differently than they have. But if you actually look back at it, you, like immediately in the aftermath, you had people like McCone saying what he said, although kept secret. You had RFK's suspicions. You had the Warren Commission itself, which had people that didn't believe what they were actually putting out. And then you have years later, the church committee uh, does an investigation. And they say, yeah, the CIA and FBI were really terrible. They had a whole report on this. And then you had the House Select Committee that says it was a conspiracy. Um, and the AARB re- reveals a number of things. And people like Tunheim and Gunn even make statements that like, yeah, the Warren Commission is really hard to defend or impossible to defend. I mean, nobody. And yet we can't do anything about it. It's like there's this whole history of, no, of, of elites and the public and investigatory bodies never believing this, uh, the, the, the two lone nuts theory that they thought about. And yet we can't do a thing about it. I mean, well, this is really amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, the 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 political inertia, right? As soon as Kennedy was dead, anybody who was interested in pursuing power in Washington had a choice: Are you going to pursue the truth about what happened to the president, or are you going to pursue power? And most people in Washington are there to pursue power, right? <laughs> they wouldn't have gotten there if that wasn't their orientation, right. so, you know. And 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 that that ambition can be good, you know. People come to Washington to be good liberals, you know. So the good liberals didn't say, oh, let's find out who killed Kennedy. They were like, no, we got to do a great society. We got to do this, that, and the other thing. And so everybody just said, you know, we're not going to go there. And then you have the people like Dulles and Helms who were like, nothing to see here, folks. Just keep moving along. You know, they have something to protect. And so the combination of these very respectable gatekeepers enclosing a body of secrets about what actually happened and, you know, the natural inclination of Washington you know, it was like somebody told me, they said, Jeff, I know you're right, but you don't understand. In 1964, we had to do that. The, Kennedy was dead. There was nothing that was going to bring him back. It was it was the patriotic thing to do was to put it behind us. And, you know, kind of emotionally and psychologically, I can understand that. You know, it was like people were scared. Is this going to cause World War Three? We want we don't want that. Let's not invest. I mean, that was baked into the cake, right? The yeah. World War Three threat. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. but, you know, but the point you're making about like, but the, the decomposition of the story has always been visible, you know? Yeah. 
you know, uh, 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 and it's interesting how, you know, how that story came out, you know, because one of the first real tests of the Freedom of Information Act, which was passed in 1966 and signed by Johnson, was when JFK researchers wanted to get the Warren Commission documents. And at first the government was like, forget it, you know. And people said, no, 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 Congress passed this law and it says, you know, you actually have to do this. And like people were shocked, you know, it's like, no, you can't make us do that. And they fought the, the, the Freedom of Information Act was fought on grounds of defending the Warren Commission for a long time. And the courts eventually ruled that, no, the Freedom of Information Act did apply. And that's when we first started to get the transcripts of the commission's proceedings and all that stuff that had been locked up all along. But, you know, that story was bottled up right from the get-go because nobody wanted those kind of deliberations that Russell and Hale Boggs were talking. Nobody, nobody in the government wanted that out. I find this, the Kennedy assassination, as I, I know you've spent a lot of time on it, but it just gives you a window into that time period. I, I don't have any boomer nostalgia for it because I wasn't alive then, but, uh, and I don't, so I don't really have an emotional attachment to these, to these people in the same kind of way. But in terms of the forces at work there, it's just this uh, view into the way that this country works. And then when you understand it, then it may, helps you to make sense of, the, you know, the things like Vietnam, how the Vietnam War could happen, Indonesia, what happens in Indonesia. I mean, basically, you, you can make sense of a whole lot of things that it, because it reveals so much about our the structure of our society and our civilization. Uh, so if it's what would what is going to happen if they actually do kind of admit this? I mean, do you do you do you have any predictions as to where this is going to go with uh, these doc? I mean, they are going to release they are going to release these in full. Isn't the Biden position that they're going to release them in full? totally unredacted soon or is he going to keep punting the, the wording of the biden memo is very soft and you know they've got now they've got till june 30th but they, they've also got license to kick the can past that so i think they're going to keep kicking the can down the road i think it's it will be something like you know a political confrontation or you know a cultural confrontation like oliver stone's jfk you know that, yeah. will, that will put the forces into play that will result in something changing. Um, you know, at the, we at the Mary Farrell Foundation have sued Biden and the National Archives for to enforce these records. And, you know, we have a whole sophisticated legal theory behind it. I And the Administrative Procedures Act and, you know, uh, ministerial duties and discretionary duties and all of that. Um, but, you know, I think that the the use of the, the, the lawsuit is not that we'll win in the court of law, but that we could win in the court of public opinion. And that's what will force the government to do something it doesn't want to do. I'm not really sure the federal courts can, you know, overcome the national security agency's built in power into our legal system uh, on yeah. their own. But, you know, if Congress weighed in and this became a fuss, you know, I think something more could happen. I was on um, Mike Isakoff's, Yahoo News show this morning. And he said, uh, you know, where is this all going? Will, you know, will we be arguing about this in 100 years? And of course, they all say, oh, you know, we'll never know. We'll never know. That's the usual. I said, I think it's going to be all over in 2067. That's when the interviews with Jackie Kennedy and Robert Kennedy with William Manchester um, will be released according to the deed of gift. And I think in those and there's also five letters that Jackie wrote to Lyndon Johnson after the assassination. Um, and I think in those letters and in those interviews, Bobby and Jackie Kennedy will s said very clearly to Manchester, we don't believe Jack was killed by this silly communist, as Jackie said, um, you know, that he was killed by his enemies. And they said that on more than one occasion, as David showed in his book. But I think when we have historians have those whole things, I'll probably be dead, but you might see it, you know, um, uh, uh, when we have those whole things in front of us, I think, you know, and we get out of the Cold War context and we get out of our political polarities today, we have to look at it with a distance of time and with some knowledge about how CIA operations 
or organized in 1963. And we've already got a lot of that, you know, but in 50 more years with this kind of evidence, I think it's going to be pretty obvious. And I think the consensus will be, yeah, Kennedy was killed by enemies in his own government, you know, in the Pentagon and CIA. And maybe we'll know more about who that was. But I, I do think that the in the long run, history will converge on the truth. Maybe that's an optimistic reading of things, but I do think that 2067. So I won't be here, but you will. So, so is that something that anybody in the Kennedy family has any discretion over or any ability to influence? I mean, is this a, a provision that's in the a, a actual Kennedy family uh, sort of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what the term is, but it well, would be out yeah. of the purview of the government. And it's more of a question of things that were provisions of their, of, of their wills or other agreements that they struck with Manchester and uh, with whoever's well, in possession, like the Lyndon Johnson library or who has those letters. The letters, the, the, manu- the, the transcripts, the tapes and the interviews are held by the library at um, Wesleyan University where Manchester was, went to school. Um, he deposited there, them there under a deed of gift, a hundred years that they could be opened in a hundred years. And that deed of gift was executed by Manchester, Robert Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy. Um, you know, if anybody had the ability to override that deed of gift, it would be Caroline. Um, and she will never do that. You know, it's her mother. That was her mother's wishes. I can't imagine that she would you know, defy her mother's wishes. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I don't think that that, I don't think that can happen. Um, the JFK Records Act also has a provision which says this law does not apply to materials that are covered by a deed of gift. And so um, the law itself says that the JFK Records Act does not apply to those records. So, you know, to me, that they, it seems impossibly out of reach. There's no way Caroline Kennedy's going to buck her mother, and it's written into the law. So, 2067, is we're going to have. But to we go. already know what Jackie and Robert thought about it, and, and their word is not. It's not as though they're going to have proof that, uh, that to add to the story. And we already do know what they thought about it. Yeah, so. but, but just imagine, you know, Jackie in her own words, and also, you know. She talked to Manchester, and this has never been made public. She talked to Manchester about the experience of being in the limousine and having, oh, her, I know. Yeah. having, her, having her husband die in her arms. Um, yeah. And, you know, when she, when that is made public, you know, that it's going to be very personal. It's going to be very powerful. That's going to have, you know, a kind of impact that just knowing what we know about Bobby and Jackie, what David found out by talking to a lot of RFK associates, you know, what we know intellectually will have this visceral emotional power that will, I think, shape the story. Yeah. I mean, we already have the like Seibert and O'Neill and Clint Hill talking about a huge exit wound in the back of Kennedy's head. And we've got the video that shows him going backwards. It's just, I, I, I'm, I would be very curious to, to read these things and I, or to see to see them come out, and I'd be excited for them to to be available. Um, and yet, it, it still is like the fact that it's even necessary. Also, seems there's just so much evidence of a uh, you know between the Parkland testimony, the Bethesda testimony, the the FBI guys, the Secret Service guy. It's just like there's so much. But the other the other part of that is that like look at that photograph of the back of Kennedy's head that seems to be clearly doctored. The one that has that little pinky sized hole in the back of his head. I mean, if they can, if they can manipulate, you know, evidence in that sort of way, is any of, are any of these documents really safe at this point? Or do you, do you worry about that? Well, Tink Thompson, who was one of the original JFK investigators who wrote six seconds in Dallas was actually the first person to analyze the Zabruder film in a kind of modern forensic way, you know, frame by frame, something the Warren commission incredibly, never did. The CIA did it and Josiah Thompson did it, but the Warren Commission never did it. So he says that, um, you know, he went on to become a private investigator and do, you know, huge insurance cases and, you know, so top of the line private investigator. And he said, you know, 
in all the cases I worked on, some massive, you know, fraud conspiracy or something like that, you know, we'd develop a case, you know, either he'd be defending the company or working with, you know, plaintiffs. And, you know, we figure out, you know, the conspiracy sort of looked like this and here's who was involved. And then, you know, five years later, when people have pleaded out and more discovery and all that, you know, over time, the picture coheres and the evidence falls into place and you see, you know, what you understand better. And the the story of what actually happens becomes clear with the accumulation of evidence. He said, you know, so why hasn't that happened with JFK? And he said the most likely explanation to him is some of what we think is evidence isn't evidence, right? Like maybe the autopsy material. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't being specific about that, but I think that's a good way to think about it is, you know, why is this case so confounding? Well, some of the things that we think are evidence, you know, may not be evidence. And, you know, it's all the state's evidence. Right, right. And so you, but the state is the main suspect. Right. So you look at, you look at the monkey business in Mexico city, you know, that could be, it's a very kind of pregnant file when you look at it now, all those cables and stuff like that. But, you know, there might've been three or four more cables that have just been taken out of there, you know, that would change the complexion of what those documents mean. And I, I'm pretty sure that that happened at some point, you know, that, that certain things were removed from the record or added to the record, you know, bogus evidence was added to the record. So that has, you know, generated this confusion. Yeah, I have a more specific question to ask you about these files. But before I'm going to, while we're on this topic, do you think it's plausible that the, the Zapruder film itself has some minor alterations to it? Um I tend to, without being someone who I, I have not, nor do I ever want to be able to, to quote chapter and verse about frame, whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> but like, I do feel like there's a, the, the case that, um, what's the guy who was on the Douglas Horn, the Doug case Horn. that he makes of, of small alterations, perhaps a black patch on the back of the head and then something added to the front, that weird blob that doesn't quite make sense when you think about the other evidence in question? I mean, do you think that that's possible that even the Zapruder film has been altered to some degree? I mean, I guess I would say I don't believe that it was. I mean, the story that Doug developed, and, you know, I give respect to Doug's position. I'm not sure I totally believe it. But, you know, the CIA did get their hands on that film much faster than anybody knew. And they did do a massive analysis of it. And his interviews with Dino Brugioni an indisputable source about CIA photography, the master of photography at the CIA for 25 years, you know, that's very compelling. And so you can see that it is theoretically possible that it did happen. You know, I spent some time with people who were like, had blown the thing up and like had 10,000 pixel resolution and, you know, here, look, here's the patch and all that. And, you know, they had a pretty sophisticated demonstration and they said you know but we're we need to perfect it and we need to do all this and you know they never have and so you know it's possible but i don't think that they made the case and so i i can't assume that it's true and also you know like you say minor alteration i mean you look at that film it sure looks like he was hit from the front you know and that's what dr mcclellan and the other dallas doctors said when they saw the wound and they saw the film yeah, he was definitely hit from the front. So, um, so no. The yeah, short answer to your question: No, I don't think the Zabruder film was altered. Yeah, I this it may be. I could be off about the details about this, but what I understand happened was they at that group that you're speaking of that had these hot, super high quality scans. They create they produced a whole documentary using those, and then at some point the sixth floor was able to step in and like stop that film from being uh, distributed like they asserted some sort of copyright uh you know priority well, over that i don't know they would have had to pay astronomical fees to get the get the rights to the film yeah something to that effect so i'm agnostic on that too i, I wouldn't i, I kind of think that it must that it could, really would have been I, I i'm agnostic but i lean toward minor alterations because of the that that blob in the front to me <laughs> of his head if everybody knows if there's so much evidence that it was an exit wound then it would have been a small entrance wound and that does not make sense. And it's something that you can see them kind of adding on and it's really weird, but that is my opinion as a guy who has looked at some video pictures not <laughs> as I'm no photo. the master. Of- I'm no, I'm no photo expert. And the, you know, the other thing I would say is 
and this is what you hear from cops, is, you know, when the human body gets hit by gunfire, like weird mm-hmm. things happen, you know? And so yeah. Dealey Plaza, you know, it's not a scientific experiment. We can't recreate the, you know, so people say, oh, you know, the body could, you know, flip backwards. And it's like, I doubt it, but, you know, because weird things happen, I couldn't say it's impossible, you know? It's like, yeah. Um, so, yeah. There's so much weirdness around this. I mean, uh, there were, I, I've heard, I read reports of people back in the 70s, like after this aired, they would like, they were shooting deer and stuff and like videotaping the way the head went and like, <laughs> we're doing all, because it's, but I, I feel like it's a, it's a microcosm of like, a number of things. Number one, just the high strangeness of it all, but also the impact that it had on, I mean, it's an exercise in kind of democracy in a way that people would be like, this can't, it can't be what happened. I'm a, Hey, look, I've got a dead deer and a gun. I'm going to do my part or something. I mean, it's, it's just, it's kind of amazing and kind of heartwarming, a little weird too. Uh, but I, and, and then it's also weird to think like, I guess I'm sort of a part of that effort. Me and those, those deer hunters. <laughs> the growth of the skepticism about the Warren commission, you know, I mean, it's part and parcel of, you know, what we mean by the sixties, you know, um, this rejection of authority, you know, and, uh, and what people forget now, especially is, you know, within two years by the fall of 66, early 67, major publications were defecting from the Warren commission, both look and life magazine, called for new investigations, um, you know, serious news publications, um, with national audience. Um, and, uh, you know, that was like the establishment itself was splitting over Vietnam, uh, you know, in those years, um, what the, the godsend to the government was, was Garrison, um, who didn't have much of a case, you know, he, he smelled a rat. And he thought he'd put some people on trial and people would start talking about, you know, instead they start dying. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, and so then you have the CIA counteroffensive with the countering critics of the Warren commission memo. And at this time when the establishment is under siege, you know, by beset by its own internal division, beset by its own children, basically, um, that sort of doubled the impulse to circle the wagons around the Warren Commission because it was like shit was falling apart, you know. And we had to, we we had to stand firm. So um, there's a, I have an amusing story on the uh, on the JFK facts uh, blog uh, about a man who knew Oswald, um, Ernest Titovitz. He was a young student in Minsk when Oswald was there, and he spoke English, so he and Oswald became friends. And he wrote a book about it, a very interesting book about Oswald before the assassination. But anyway, Titovitz says, Norman Mailer calls him up in the 90s and says, oh, I understand you knew Oswald, you know, I want to come and see you. And so Titovitz is very flattered, the great American writer, progressive, wants to meet him and all that. And David Lifton, the guy who wrote the book Best Evidence about the first book that really raised real questions about the JFK autopsy. Lifton was friends with Titovitz from his own JFK research. And he went to him and said, do not trust Norman Mailer. That guy's out to convict Oswald. He's out to convict your friend. And Titovitz says in this story, read it. He says, I never trusted the guy. And he said, and he thanked David Lifton, who died last week. He thanked David Lifton, he said, because, you know, otherwise he might have fallen for Norman Mailer. (laughs) Yeah, because Mailer was originally kind of a critic of the Warren Commission, but then he writes like what Oswald's Ghost or something like that in the '90s after the JFK movie, and it was very strange, right? Wasn't that the general trajectory of the guy? Or yeah, was he ever you know, was he, he a critic? As I remember, he, early wasn't he initially a critic? Yeah, he was. He just you know he he wouldn't he, he wouldn't go that far, and he was scared of you know being labeled a conspiracy theorist, so he sort of. He sort of walked back from the abyss and developed this whole, you know, cosmic theory about Oswald. And it's all kind of, to me, it's all kind of BS. It's all imputed. It's not really, it's not really what the evidence shows. So Yeah. I mean, but, you know, there's, even when you said Life Magazine was like defecting in 67, and I, I, I do recall that, the Look Magazine guy, one of the editors wasn't there a strange death around that? Like one of the guys was looking to do more on this and then he just drops dead of a heart attack. 
uh, maybe something related to Garrison. I sort of remember that, but set that aside for a second. Okay. Life Magazine was like, that's the company that was like the official PR arm of the American Deep State, basically. I mean, they they right, wrote uh, the American Century essay and the, the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR, loose dude, and C.D. Jackson went and snatched up the, the tape. And then Epstein was a critic too, but he was also an Angleton guy. Uh, and, you know, and then also you have this, you have Norman Mailer, who's supposed to be a critic, but that ends up, I mean, it makes you wonder how many of the critics have been corrupted a, a way to get a, a get out a way to get out ahead of the story here <laughs> in some ways. Like if this is just one of their current MOs, which I do think it is a CIA thing to have these, these, this sort of limited hangout or to control the critical community. It seems like exactly the kind of thing they would do. Do you have any, uh, in, any t- take on that or? Well, it, it is interesting. When I did the Angleton book, um, Angleton was spying on the JFK critics um, in the late 60s and early 70s. He would send people to their meetings and, uh, uh, you know, keep keep up with what they were doing. And he certainly infiltrated the Garrison project. And one of the ways that they infiltrated it was by posing as supporters, um, uh, which was a typical Angleton tactic. Um, so, you know, people have talked about that in the research community. I mean, I never, I never saw like a case that I felt like that aroused my suspicion in that way. Maybe I'm just a trusting person. Um, uh, you know, what about Epstein though? What about Epstein and his relationship I mean, with Angleton? I think Ed Epstein's a very smart, idiosyncratic guy. He became friends with Angleton. You know, he didn't want to be perceived as a nut. He wanted to be an insider. It was all very interesting. Angleton was credible to Epstein. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, I mean, the Kennedy assassination is tough because it is a kind of epistemological test, right? How do you know what the truth is and how do we... How how does anybody know anything about anything? (laughs) And so, so, um, you know, uh, when somebody's like, you know, people say, oh, you know, how can you believe that crap? You know, it's like I'm I'm very modest. You know, like people come to life with all different experiences. And if somebody like really believes in the Warren Commission, I don't question their motives. You know, it's like that's fine. I just, it's To me, it's almost like religion. It's like that's fine. You're a Muslim. I'm not a Muslim, but I'm OK with you being a Muslim. I'm OK with you being a single bullet guy. I'm not going to hold it against you. Um, but. But because the subject is so important and it provokes these passionate feelings, you know, we're always, you know, being tolerant and then we're at each other's throats. You know, how how do you believe that crap about Oswald? (laughs) I mean, the magic bullet, when you even hear like J. Edgar Hoover saying, I'm not sure that's plausible. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's like, of course it's not J. Edgar Hoover. (laughs) But then like other people will believe, we'll we'll try to like, we'll try to defend it or um the like John McAdams would write like the single bullet fact. Yeah. Don't call it the, don't call it a theory and don't call it a magic bullet. So there you go. Um, but as far as them using things like this, I mean, I, I I have this, there's a story that I've put out on Al McCoy and Peter Dale Scott. And I'm not saying this to disparage Al McCoy, but if you look back at what actually happened with that and Peter's original war conspiracy book, Al McCoy's book became a bestseller and there was a C- and he had he got to interview like Lucian Conine and Ed Lansdale and he had a DEA guy help him also and then he gets all this publicity because there's this New York Review of Books uh story about how the CIA tried to like take him down and kill his book and everything else the outcome is that that this book becomes really popular Peter's book was pushed they delayed the release for years to the maximum possible because Bob's Merrill the publisher just did it Right. Uh-huh. And then later we find and and they push it. So it actually comes out after uh, McCoy's book and then it kind of disappears. And it was it had the same sort of heroin story, only it was a it was deeper and kind of more explosive. It disappears. The book, more or less, Al's book becomes a bestseller. He goes on to have a uh, get a tenured position at Wisconsin, which is not what happened to Gary Webb, if you recall. So that's that's interesting. But uh, but years later, I find on the CIA website, Peter's 1971 Ramparts article that he had mailed the Ramparts on the Air America heroin story well before uh, it appeared in any newspaper, any other magazine outlet or anything like that. 
and the CIA had had a meeting over it and they posted it on their website and the article never made it to Ramparts uh, and the story doesn't come out. And Peter's book, which has this story in it, gets delayed and the legal counsel for Bob's Merrill, the company that delayed Peter's book all that time, was William Harvey, who had retired to work for Bob's Merrill. Right. And they delayed that book. And then that story actually does come out, but it comes out with Al McCoy writing a less explosive, with a less explosive take on it. I'm not saying, I, I have respect for Al McCoy in general, and Peter considers him a friend. But that story to me is, uh, is amazing because I, I think that they actually that it was they actually had a plan to like deal with this information and kind of diffuse it as best as po as best they could and it involved exposing a lot of it uh and but you know and that's that's the way that it happened so i really am, i have put almost nothing past them and yet i don't want to go around thinking that way all the time because it would drive me a little a little batty uh i mean i've read the book in a long time but i, I mean to me the way mccoy describes it where you know it was very easy to talk about these things if you were in Vietnam, you know, if you were in Phnom Penh, you know, um, it was when you, and so people talked about it because it was just part of the fabric of life. When you extracted yourself from that and came back to Paris or Washington, he, and he, he mentions this, I don't know if you remember this in the book, you know, all of a sudden, you know, like these are not conversations that you have, but I found it convincing that McCoy had kind of, gotten into the story, gotten access to people like Lou Conin, who didn't think twice, of, of course we deal dope. You know, that's how we fund our covert ops. You know, what, what are you talking about? You know, uh, these rough hewn characters who were candid with him. Was that a CIA project? I mean, it's interesting that Harvey was at Bob's Merrill and, you know, did that hurt Peter? I don't know. Um, like you, I think once you start thinking about things that way, you can definitely... So, um, Aaron, I'm going to have to go. I got another call to do. Um, okay. Uh, well, thank you very much. I was, I was going to ask about which, if you thought it was more related to Cuba or if you thought it was more related to the mole hunt, you know, the fair play for Cuba thing. Do you have a, do you um, think you the know, documents in question that the guys referring to related to Tucker are related to the mole hunt? Or do you think it's more likely it was FPCC? Uh, I think it's, I, I, I think it was done in the guise of, a COINTELPRO style operation run by the CIA against the FPCC. I don't, you know, Angletonian madness makes anything possible, but I, I don't think it goes back to the mole hunt. Thank you very much for doing this uh, today. I really appreciate it. If I can do anything else to help you publicize this, let me know. I'm at your disposal. So thanks again. When do you put this out? I'm going to put it out today. Okay, great. I'll look for it. Thanks. All right. All right see you later. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks to Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and also to Seamus McGinnis for putting together a video version. And as ever, thanks to Mock Orange for the music. If you are not already a subscriber and you want to learn more about the hidden history of the U.S. and the clandestine state, please consider subscribing to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. We have a whole lot of material covering many suppressed historical episodes from the world's most powerful empire. It can be grim material, but that's why we're out here chasing the light. <laughs>